Our guest this week is none other than F3 co-founder, free to lead co-author, Tim Whitmire, known as OBT to the guys in F3. Tim's going to tell his story growing up out in California, attending Harvard on the rowing team there. He bounced around a few different jobs as a journalist. Now he has his own company consulting leaders to be relational leaders and, uh, and helping them in their business. But he and F3 Dread are the two guys that founded F3. Sit back and listen to OBT's story. Welcome to the High Impact Man podcast. High impact men from across the nation sharing their stories of inspiration, encouragement, and hope. Gosh, seek transformational relationships. What you're hearing from the culture is not right. Pick up the six, you know what I mean? But you never know who your six sometimes is. Stop being less. To help others become the virtuous leaders they are called to be and that our nation desperately needs. All right, dial up. Here we go again. Another episode of the High Impact Man podcast. Yeah, that's right. Rolling I, along. We're well into our second year already. Yeah, I think this is episode 55, if I'm not mistaken. I think you're right. Yes, it is. Season two, episode three. That's right. All right. My name is Nevin Gorky. I'm your host. I'm known as DFib in the gloom with my F3 friends. Uh, as you've already heard, this is uh, my co-host, Troy Klinger, known as Dial Up in the Gloom. And uh, just so you guys know, um, this is we're recording this on March 29th. You're not going to hear it. Well, they'll hear it Monday, won't they? They will hear it Monday. Oh, this is about as up to date as we've been in a while. We should have had some like April Fool's jokes. <laughs> we should have. Planned. We should have. got nothing. Yeah, we got nothing. Dang it. All right. We had a guy in our packs today, did his virgin queue, and he did a great job. Yeah. He got out there. I, he was out on the, the, the YouTube channel that I can't remember the guy's name that uh, that put it together, but he was out there surfing through, finding new exercise for our COP, and he, he gave us some good stuff we've never done before and played a great a game that was... Uh, a workout, a yeah. good workout. Yeah, right. I was jealous. I could only walk right now. So, but you could always do something, right? Yeah. And what happened to you during the workout? Oh, you were, yeah. You were walking. So, Dfib's still recovering from his back surgery. For any new listeners, All right. And, and uh, so, so he can only he's, walk. He's faithfully coming to the beatdowns and just walking laps while the rest right. of us do. Other I was so stuff. intrigued when they started the beatdown. I was walking backwards to see what they were doing, and I backed right into a curb and fell into the mulch, which uh, was a good <laughs> test of my back operation. So fresh, it, fresh mulch. Fresh mulch. Nice and nice soft. Nice and soft, and, yeah. yeah. It was a cushiony landing. Cushioned my big butt. Yeah. I missed it. I didn't see it happen. Nobody saw it, so it didn't really happen. I did put a request into the security folks at <laughs> Geising to see if, it, if they caught it. And it's not on Strava. <laughs> yeah, it's not on Strava. It All didn't right. happen. <clears throat> so we have a guest for you today that we've been looking forward to, actually, for a while. Uh, this is OBT. A lot of you guys know him because he's a co-author of the book Free to Lead with Dread. Also... He and Dredd are the guys that started this whole thing called F3. For those of you who don't know what F3 is and you're listening to us, F3 stands for Fitness, Fellowship, and Faith. It's a now worldwide movement um, of small workout groups for men. It's free. And uh, we come together and we lock shields together as men. You can develop relationships and fellowship with other men when you're doing hard things together. It brings you closer. And the, the faith part, fitness, fellowship, and faith. And the faith part is believing in something bigger than yourself so you can go out there and be a servant leader. We want people to be virtuous leaders. And we bring men on, the, on this podcast to tell their story. And we, I'm looking forward to hear what OBT has to say. So OBT, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here, guys. Glad uh, when you're, uh, you've been at this for, uh, for 55 weeks. So uh, yeah. that's, that's all, all or 55 or at least 55 episodes. So that, that, uh, that indicates a certain level of uh, impressive uh, consistency. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, we just love it. You know, yeah. if nobody, we always say, if nobody listened to us, we'd still do this because we love talking to guys from around the <laughs> around the country, and we're setting up guys from yep. uh, across the seas to be on. And honestly, we really do. It's it's great to hear all these different guys' stories, and uh, and so yeah, we just really enjoy it. And they are weekly episodes, so you're right, fifty five weeks. We we leave every episode generally very inspired. Yes, by the folks that we talk to. So. Yeah, yeah, inspired and convicted. Sometimes. So hopefully, yeah, we got other listeners out there that are equally inspired. Yeah. We don't yeah. want to just keep it for ourselves to be inspired. No, we don't. We spread the wealth. So OBT, yeah. you know, I know that you and Dredge started this whole thing called F3, and we want you to tell that story a little bit, but um, uh, most of the guys know that. So nobody EH'd you. You're the, you're the founder. So I can't ask you who EH'd you. And I know when you started it, because you guys started it on 1-1-2011, I believe. Yep. And uh, so I know that. So the question is... That's been plaguing the minds of all those who want to know, which is Dial Up and Me. We yeah. always try to figure out how people got their F3 names, you know, and OBT, we're completely clueless. So how did you get OBT? Well, you know, people from the Northeast are often a little confused because, you know, in the Northeast, uh, where, where they still have horse racing, o- o- OBT sounds a lot like OTB, which is off-track betting. Right. Um, but it, it has nothing to do with uh, with wagering on horse races. Um but I, it actually it has a lot to do with the um, uh, actually how I got started in in this uh, uh, this effort, which was that uh, the very first workout that I went to that was sort of along the lines of F three, which would be to say you know kind of outdoors seven to eight a.m. Um, in here in Charlotte, um, and and with a group of guys, and you know nobody holding the clipboard and counting reps, nobody charging you any money for it was in July of, of 2008. And, uh, that was, uh, a friend of mine had started working out with this group of guys at, at Freedom Park here in Charlotte, um, a couple of weeks before. And, uh, and there, he, there were a couple of us who were, he, he was trying to get a group together to run a, a mud run obstacle course race mm-hmm. that was taking place that fall. And, uh, and my friend Chuck knew that I, I could probably hang with the, uh, the obstacle course race team. I was, I, I had done a lot of running at that point in my life. I had run several marathons, even though I was probably above my opti- optimal weight. Um, Chuck figured I could probably get through it. But there was another guy that he wanted to include on the team who he was a little less sure of. It's this guy named Rob that we also worked with. And uh, so Chuck was like, all right, well, I've been doing this workout with these guys. And he was sort of telling us about it. And, you know, oh, you run up the hill and you run down the hill and they call it this. And then you run around the train and they call it that. And he was sort of explaining it to us and it sounded a little bit crazy. And he was like, and I think we should get you and Rob out there this weekend. And it'll be a good way for Rob to get in shape with this, uh, for this race that, that we're going to potentially do. So, um, I got up, uh, what, what felt to me to be the ungodly hour of, you know, 6 a.m. on a mm-hmm. Saturday because I was used to kind of sleeping in and, and, and I had young kids at that time. And Rob actually lived about a block away from, from me. So I, I picked him up on the way and we went over to Freedom Park and we, uh, we, we showed up at this workout and it was, you know, as advertised group of guys. I'd, I'd never met, uh, really any of them except for, for my friend Chuck and, and Rob was there. And, um, we go around and, and we do this workout and they happened to be doing it. It was sort of a fitness test that, that particular week. So it was like, you know, how many push-ups can you do in a minute, which for me was like five or 10, <laughs> how many pull-ups can you do in a minute, which was a big zero for me at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was sort of a series of things like that and everything was kind of body weight. And, uh, 
And so we did, I think maybe it was, I think it was a decathlon. So we did sort of eight of those. And then the ninth thing was you had to run about two miles from Freedom Park up East Boulevard in Charlotte, if anybody knows Charlotte, and to a gym that was, uh, that was in the South End at that point. And then we did a couple more sets of other things inside the gym. And that was the only thing that we did that morning where I could kind of look myself in the, in the mirror afterwards and say, you know, okay, I did all right on that. I finished maybe second in the run because most of these guys were pretty heavy set guys and didn't do a lot of running and, and so forth. So, but I finished second or third in the run. Everything else was a total disaster because I had no upper body strength at that point. And, uh, um, so we get there and, and we finished the workout and, and it was fine or whatever. And then the thing, but the thing that these guys couldn't really understand was that, um, that was the summer of, of, of the presidential election. And I had shown up at the workout and I had an Obama sticker on my car. Cause that was who I, who I voted for that year. Uh-huh. And these guys all thought it was really funny that, uh, that I was going to vote for Obama. Um, and that that was kind of weird. So they started calling me Obama Tim and, uh, and it you know, says a bunch of white guys. Um, so, and they, they couldn't really grok this idea that, that I was going to, going to vote for Obama. Um, and so they started calling me Obama Tim and that got shortened to, uh, to OBT. So that is really the, uh, the origin of, of the nickname and it, it, it stuck and, and obviously he was reelected. And then in, in 2016, um, when, you know, we had another election and, and he was going to no longer be the president. My kids were very curious about whether I was going to get renamed, uh, <laughs> you know, as either, you know, after either one of the candidates that year. And my position was like, no, I think I'll, I'll stick with Obama Tim. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll just be, uh, I'll just keep being OBT. Thanks a lot. So, yeah, I would never. Um, we, never I was gonna say we we always try and guess like the origins of the name before yeah before the show starts yeah. or sometimes as we're as we're chatting and uh, it never yeah we never would have got that one. I would have never. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a little bit of a deep cut. And uh, uh, the other thing I have to say is my friend Rob um, went to that one workout. He never he never came again. So this group was. It's, it's known as the Campos to this day, and that's kind of the predecessor group. And we tell some of the story about Dave and me meeting in in that group. Uh, I think Dave showed up about a year later after I did mm-hmm. um, in that group and, and kind of what spurred us out of that to, to start um, what became the, the F3 movement. Right. But it really, that, that 1-1-11 workout was actually really just intended as, a, as almost a spinoff of the Campos group. The, mm-hmm. the guy who led who led that workout and, and started it and really probably deserves the most credit for kind of being the founder of, of this whole idea was a guy named Jeff Gillibo and Jeff, you know, when, when the, the Campos group got to a certain size, which is, as I recall, was about 25 guys. Um, Jeff felt like you were losing a little bit of, we, we didn't, we didn't call it second F back then, but he felt like that was, that was fraying some of the bonds of, of second F that right. if, if you didn't really know the guys really well that you were working with that, uh, um, that, that, that was a problem. And, and so he, he basically was the one who said, you know what, we're not, we're shutting down campus. No, no new people, um, allowed. And, and uh, for a little while there was some stuff about like, well, we're going to do a, God, this is, this is really going back in the memory banks, but like, we're going to do a second workout and it's going to start at 6 a.m. And if you attend the second workout, which I think was called Secundo or Segundo or something like that, if you attend that 10 times, then you can gain admittance to the camp, the main campus workout. Uh-huh. And so there were, 
there was all this sort of uh, uh, stuff around that. And then finally, that wasn't working out. He just sort of threw up his hands and said, that's it. No more no more new guys. And, and that was really the point at which Dave and I looked at each other. And we'd been, we'd become friends. We'd been having lunch downtown where we both worked at the time and talking about what this thing um, had done in our lives and seemed to be doing in other people's lives. And we just kind of looked at each other other over lunch and we're like, this is crazy. We, we got to get this. It, it can't, we can't restrict it to just the group of people who are here today. We got to, got to get it in front of more men. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I got, it was funny, I got, I was tailgating before the, uh, the Springsteen concert in Greensboro on, uh, on Saturday night with a couple of F3 guys. And one of them asked me that, the question that, that we get all the time, which is like, oh, when you started this on, on 1111, did you ever imagine that it would be, you know, as you said, a, a worldwide thing and yeah. tens of thousands of men? And I, I, the, my most honest answer to that is always, um, not, necessarily in the specifics of it or how it would grow or whatever but we were very missional and intentional from the start of like we want to get this in front of as many men as we possibly can so it you know when people are like oh are you surprised that you know 500 people showed up for the fifth anniversary workout well yeah sure i mean that's a great number or whatever but like this was the intent all along we want we want this has made a huge difference in our lives and we wanted, and we figured we weren't that different from the average, you know, American adult male, right. um, that if you put it in front of a bunch of other guys that they would get it too. And so that, that part of it is all, I always feel a little bit weird about that question. Cause it's like, no, I'm, I'm really not that surprised by it. Cause it, it, it clearly works for a lot of guys. So that, and, and we, and that was what we intended to do. So. Yeah, that's awesome. And the rest, as they say, is history and it's still going on. The story is not finished being written yet new workouts every week yeah 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 that, that's that's great um so yeah so i, I just want to take a step back because yeah. i guess I, I didn't know this i don't remember it being mentioned maybe in free delete and i don't think we talked about it with uh with dread but so even at campos the the nickname uh awarding existed then from what i'm hearing you yep. from from yep. what i'm hearing you say and and the names of exercises were always the the wacky names that we use and not not the yep. standard names as well okay I yeah. thought I thought that maybe was like the kind of part of F three as it as it got started with that initial no, house, no, but I, that carried I, I, over from campus as well. Say, yeah, Dave Dave kind of upped the ante on the the weird names of things because he's got <laughs> that's the kind of Shocker. mind he's got, and yeah. it, he's very creative, and it's a very fertile mind, and he's always looking to make a, another connection. Um, but no, that was uh, from the start. You know, the the Merkins is just you know you know, sort of, Oh, it's American style pushups. It's, it's American. It's American, you know, American, yeah. you know, however you want to mm-hmm. pronounce that. And, um, and, and so everything, yeah, everything kind of had a name and everything. And, and the nicknaming was just that to me is, is elemental. I mean, that, that goes back, you know, in my mind, the first time I encountered that was first time I watched animal house. Right. And Belushi's yeah. going down the, right. uh, yep. down the row, you know, your Delta Tau Kai name is, you know, mm-hmm. flounder and, your Delta Tau Kai name is Pinto and it's what guys do, right? It's, right. it's the most natural thing. And, uh, and the, the only debate we had on that at, at the beginning was that as, as we expanded a little bit, there was some sense or, or some sentiment out there that you should have to show up to a second workout before you, you got your nickname. And uh, I, I don't know how you guys feel about that, but I, I personally felt like 
I've got a nickname, a guy at the first workout. That's, that becomes your nickname is your passport. And once you, once you've got your passport, you're, you're welcome. And you're a citizen of F3 nation and that, you know, crosses all borders and, and you're welcome at any workout and, and you're one of us. It, it shouldn't have to be a, a right of initiation. We're, we're open to all men, as we say in the core principles. Yeah. And so, um, to me, it was always, now you gotta, you gotta, you gotta nickname that guy right away. You gotta baptize him yeah. in, uh, in the F3 nation and make him a full member. Yeah. And that's, and that's what we do in our, in our region, but we have heard, we've talked about that actually on a couple episodes here, that mm-hmm. there are some regions that, that do hold off to like a second, uh, a second post before they give the name. We always just talk about it, that sometimes we use up a really good name. Well, we come up with guy. really good names when no one's there, and then when somebody shows up, we never use those right. good names. We, we We're always too, yeah, too we, nice. We use our we use up the best names on the guys that yeah. then end up not coming. It's like, oh man, that was a really good name. Right, yeah. We never saw the guy again. I I do that when I look through our roster, you know, for right. tennis and everything. I'm like, man. so you know, we had a. I li- I actually listened to the pod, watched it on YouTube, the podcast that you and Dread were on with Rev Books. Um, oh yeah, 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 Rev Reed. Yeah. Rev Reed. Sorry. Yeah, I don't know when that was recorded, but I watched it today, and. Ah. Uh, you guys talked about that and dread used the word consecrated. That's how you get consecrated into F3. You use the word baptized. Yeah. And, but I, I totally agree. If a guy's going to get out of bed and show up, he's going to, most guys are going to be a little afraid when they get there, maybe a little nervous or whatever. And I think you welcome in, welcome them into the tribe, right? It's a yeah. tribal thing yeah. and you get your name, man. And that's it. You know, if they don't come back, they don't come back. That's okay. And guys are looking forward to that. A lot of times when they come for yeah. the first time, because most mm-hmm. guys like know about the nicknames, right? Cause right. They, they'll hear it. Uh, and so, yeah, so they're looking forward to it. Like, wow, when am I, when am I going to get named? I know I was excited cause we, yeah. we were launching during COVID and so we didn't, we didn't do any naming for quite some time until we actually got together in a true right. F3 style beatdown. Yeah. And yeah. Not- so I, I planted the shovel flag here in May of 2021, but I had put an SLT together, dial up included. There were five of us and another guy got pulled in. So six of us basically, and I would initially I sent out the workouts. We would do them in our garage or in our yard, and we'd like videotape okay. ourselves afterwards because we weren't allowed to meet together yet because of the pandemic. And uh, but then when we were able to finally uh, meet together in person, that's when everyone got their nickname. Because yeah. I already had one, but yeah, yeah, yeah no, I'm totally down with that. Um, yeah, so and go ahead, and then Deepib, how did you? Uh, how did you? Like what? Who reached out to you? I, I know uh, I know C-SPAN was up in in Philadelphia and in that area. Uh, was, was he was he your connection in or what? No, was, how did no. it work? Uh, my wife and I moved to Florida, and uh, we were living in a place called Lakewood Ranch, which is a Bradenton address. But um, and uh, Bing launched yep. what became F three Suncoast. But the very first yeah. AO was F three Lakewood Ranch, and my wife saw it on a Lakewood Ranch Facebook page or something like this. She said, "You should go to this." And so my wife eh'd me, and so I, I attended there for. I don't know how many months. We were only there for a year. They launched in eight. We we arrived in um, November. They launched in April. I joined them, I think, in March, and then we okay. moved moved back to back to the same town in, in Pennsylvania um, a year later. So, uh, yeah, okay. that's that's how I I got in, into F three. Unfortunately, so, so when you moved back, you had that intention of like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go plant it in Susquehanna. Well, what not initially? I I came back and my I had started a men's group. In 2011, coincidentally, uh, okay. tra- after reading a book called Raising a Modern Day Night by Robert Lewis, and I wanted to bring together men who had young boys so that we could yeah. kind of raise our boys together, you know, celebrate victories, milestones, have ceremonies, stuff like that. And uh, that grew into just a men's group for all men. 
on Saturday mornings. We would just, you know, meet somewhere for breakfast and study a book or, you know, whatever and pray for each other, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, when I came back, my pastor wanted me to ramp up the men's ministry. So I started another group on Tuesday nights. So now I got a group Saturday morning, group Tuesday nights. And you, you'll be interested in this because the way that the Tuesday night uh, thing, we called it the forge. We, we did the same thing. We just, it was an evening instead. Um, but instead of just getting together and starting into a discussion about the book, somebody stood up for about 20 minutes, myself and I think two other guys shared the responsibility of presenting something. And that would be the topic for us to break into small groups. And that's when I found out, hey, there's a book called Free to Lead out there. And I picked it up. It's and a masterpiece. It I is. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure Pulitzer's coming soon. First edition. Right. <laughs> I got the first edition book. I read it. And it's like, man, that spoke to my heart. There's, there's two books that, besides the Bible that spoke to my heart as a man. One was called The Way of the Wild Heart by John Eldridge. And then this yep. book. And um, I, so I, I was using the Free to Lead book as resource material to teach in the Tuesday night Bible study, basically in men's group that we had. And I'm reading it. I'm thinking That's I really wild. need to. Yeah, I know. And I, I was like, man, I got to do this again. I need this for myself, but these guys need it. And um, yeah. so your book, you and dread what you guys put together really inspired me to plant the shovel flag here. And it took me about a year because I had started this thing called the forge on Tuesday nights and I'm going to Saturday leading the Saturday morning group. And Two things. One is I wanted to make sure the forge was off and running before I handed it off to somebody else. And I also know that if I plant the shovel flag, I got to show up. That means I got to get up early and I got to go work <laughs> out hard. <laughs> and I know I'm not going to be the guy, the most fit guy there. So anyway, I finally bit the bullet and did it. And that's how, that's how we ended up with the shovel flag here. So, but you get, you, you get credit, man, for, you know, oh, inspiring me thank to do you. that. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. But that's, I mean, it's funny just because that's, I mean, that, reversal yeah i mean it's just it's a it's a little bit of a reversal of the the usual story but it um but it works just the same right you you had that i mean that that goes to the whole dolphin daffodil thing right you knew you yeah. knew your thing was men yep. um and and uh and male formation and adult male formation or however you want to do it but and you were gonna by hook or by crook there was going to be some right method for it uh for you to do it so that's Absolutely. Awesome. When I read that, that whole thing about the dolphin and daffodil and the D2X, I'm thinking that is my D2X. I, I yeah. want to a minister to men, you know, and, and that was, yeah. and, and teach. That's my spiritual gift, apparently. That and uh, provocation, but provocation is not that. And falling on your butt in the mulch, I guess, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> wink, wink, wink consumption is probably three or four on that list. <laughs> so, anyway, you're right, though. That was that fit right into my D2X. So, I'm doing my D2X, you know, and uh, yeah. so really cool. I just that's, never, that's awesome. never that's put awesome, it into man. words like that, but yeah, but I'm yeah. a reader, so I'm yeah, always picking up books. So that was, that was great. But this story is about this, good. this podcast is about you, not me. So let's, uh, no, 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 you know, <laughs> <laughs> let's turn back to you. So, um, let's, let's talk about from the beginning, you know, you sent me in your bio, you grew up in San Francisco. Tell me what it was like growing up there or San Francisco Bay area. What was it like there? What was yeah. family life like for uh, young OBT? Uh, yeah, so, so I was born in, in Southern California. I was born in, in Pasadena, um, home of the Rose Bowl. Um, my, uh, my, my mom had, uh, had grown up in Boston and my dad had grown up in Cincinnati and they met when they were both in college in Boston and, and got married. And my dad was a, a lawyer for a firm in, in Los Angeles that no longer exists called Kendall and Anderson. Um, but he was, uh, he was a tax attorney and he was kind of, a young uh, associate trying to make partner in, in, in the early 1970s there. And 
they ended up kind of splitting up uh, in, in 1974, 75. So I was kind of, I was probably three when my dad left and, and probably five when they finalized the divorce. So I don't, don't have real uh, strong memories of my dad uh, being around, but, and that was of course in, in the great wave of, you know, kind of when divorce swept the kind of professional classes um, in America. And, and, you know, so I grew up in California um, and a lot of, a lot of the kids in my, in my classes and, and in my schools growing up had, were the children of divorce. And, mm. and that was just kind of the, the way it was. And what happened was my mom, against all odds, did not uh, go back to Boston and, and to her parents, but decided to kind of go it on her own out in California. She went back to graduate school, got a degree in, in urban planning, um, and ended up getting a series of jobs um, that moved her further up the, the coast of California, further north. Um, and so she worked in a, she went to grad school at Claremont, which is, uh, if anybody knows Southern California, in the, in the Inland Empire part of Southern California. And then uh, we lived in a town called Pacifica, which is uh, just on the on Highway One south of San Francisco. The uh, only thing I remember about the year we spent there was that it was foggy all the time. Yeah. And uh, and then she got a, um, another job in a town called Santa Rosa, which is about sixty miles north of San Francisco. It's in the wine country. Um, when we moved there in 1977, it was still very much a farm town um, in some ways, um, just a, but a straight shot on on Highway 101 north of San Francisco. And that was where we lived for the next nine years. She worked for the, the county of Sonoma um, as, a, as a land use planner. And uh, I went to a, a public school there in, in Santa Rosa. I had a younger brother um, uh, who's two years younger than I am. And uh, so that was, that was our life there. And, and uh, my mom was very, very focused on um, us uh, being high achievers academically. She was a little bit of a tiger mom on, on mm-hmm. the academic stuff. Um, and, uh, and so she, uh, she really, you know, she felt like we weren't getting a great education at the public schools in, in Santa Rosa. So she ended up, um, uh, looking around and trying to find a private school to send us to. And that ended up being, um, south of San Francisco in Marin County, which is the county in between when you go north over the Golden Gate Bridge or and you go to Sausalito and Tiburon and so forth. That's Marin County. And there was a private school there called Marin Country Day School that she um, ended up, uh, I, I, you know, got in there and she wired up some insane carpooling thing where I would get up at five o'clock in the morning and, and a guy who taught in the public schools in Marin County would drive me most of the way to my private school. And then there was another relay with, where somebody else would pick me up. And it was it was pretty wild. It was, you know, and, and I was the only kid from Sonoma County in, in, in the entire school. They all thought I was a farm hick, you know, and, <laughs> and, uh, didn't help that my mom knew a farmer. Uh, and that ended up being my summer job was I worked on a, on an organic farm in, in Sonoma County. So that just sort of reinforced it. But, um, went to school at Marine Country Day School for a couple of years. And then to make matters worse, ended up deciding I wanted to go to high school in the city in San Francisco. I went to a, a school there called University High School, and and that was, you know, even even earlier wake up times to uh, to commute to school. So I was really kind of commuting sixty miles a day back and forth for uh, um, for for high school, um, and you know got got pretty good grades and and was a fairly high achiever academically, and uh, and ended up uh, going to school at Harvard, um, which is where my uh, my father had gone as well, and and. Uh, 
and I'd, I'd had some other relatives who had gone there. So that, that was, and I had been very focused, you know, since I understood what college was on wanting to go to Harvard because there was sort of this family legacy there. Um, so that was, that was kind of the, um, that was what got me back East to begin with. Um, and then, uh, I, you know, one of, one of the fallout pieces of the, uh, my mom's focus on academics was that she never really prioritized sports for us. And so my brother and I were always dying to play little league. Um, but my mom, you know, couldn't volunteer in the, in the concession stands on the weekends, didn't have time to drive us back and forth to practice. She worked a lot of nights because of night meetings and so forth. Didn't really have time uh, to, to do that. And so um, I had never played a sport really until I got to college. And uh, I tell a bit of the story in Free to Lead, but um, went out uh, for the crew team uh, my freshman year at Harvard. And, uh, and that was a, a hugely transformational experience in my life was to um, have that experience of being on a team for the first time and, you know, Wait, so the, so the you never you never yeah. rode before? No. And you no. joined the team. So one, one of the, and this is I think this has changed in the last, you know, 30 35 years um where, you know, rowing has expanded a lot and a lot more high schools do it, but at that time the way they would form the uh the crew the freshman crew team crew at Harvard was they would just go to the freshman union which was the dining hall and they would have a meeting and, you know, you were welcome if you were a novice. They would, they would teach you how to row. They would put you in a boat, um, on the boathouse. And, and I, I sort of described this process in, in free to lead, but like, you know, 150 guys show up and they're handing out t-shirts that have right. uh, crew 92 on the back, uh, that, uh, you know, cause we were the class in 1992. And, uh, and so all the guys go to get the t-shirt, right. And then all the guys, Oh yeah, I'm going out for crew, whatever. And they, they wear the t-shirt, you know, to, parties in Harvard yard, freshman week and whatever. Uh -huh. And then you know, so it's like maybe 120 actually show up for the first time we get in the boat. And then, you know, after a couple of weeks, it's a hundred and then, you know, so on and so forth. Um, but I, uh, I made it uh, all the way down to, uh, to the final, you know, whether I was in the third boat, my freshman year, mm -hmm. I was, I was no great shakes as a rower, but I, I've made it to spring season. I made it to the the two a days that we did uh, it, over spring break, and I made it to racing season, and um, and that that was a, a really transformational experience in my life, and and uh, um, that's where I get the whole the, the third five hundred thing that we talk about right. in, in the book as well. So, yep. um, and I and and to this day, I my um, my firm actually, I, I've got a consulting firm, and and uh, it's called CXN Advisory, and it's really because of that that crew experience of you got a little guy who sits in the front of the crew boat and guy or girl in a lot of cases who's called the coxswain and nobody can, it's spelled C-O-X-S-W-A-I-N and nobody can ever figure out how to pronounce it. But so I just abbreviated it as, as C-X-N. But, um, but I, what I do is really as I, I serve as the coxswain for corporate and, and other organizational leadership teams to try to get, get them in cadence and rowing together and, oh, and aligned and everything. That's good. I like that. Yeah. That's a cool analogy. Yeah. I, yeah. I want to get into your business uh, in a bit, but I, um, yeah. I want to ask you two. Th well, first of all, have you ever been up to, to Harvard deep dial up? Yeah. I was up here just, uh, just this winter went for a little run through Harvard. Oh, I, I went there once. Yeah. I went to a conference, a medical conference. And I, I think I took a cab down. We were on the, on the same side of the James, James river. 
And I walk through, I, th- I think, Charles, I, River. Charles River, yeah. sorry. I walk through, I think it was MIT, because I saw these signs on the building say MIT classrooms and stuff, but it didn't look like a campus. But then somehow, yeah. I think I took a cab to, to Harvard, but. Well, they're just, what, a quarter yeah. mile apart, right? MIT yeah, or maybe I walked there. Yeah, yeah, they're both in Cambridge. <laughs> yeah. I might have walked yeah. there. I can't remember. It was a while ago. But what I remember yeah. is outside of the walls of the campus, it's loud. I mean, it's a busy street and shops and restaurants and stuff. Yeah. And the gates are open. There's like just wide open. But as soon as I walked through the gate, it was like silent. I don't know how that happened. It was eerie. It was really <laughs> eerie. And then I walked through the campus and Everybody's Harvard studying. Yard. And I walked up and I saw the statue of John. Is it Harvard? John Harvard. Yeah. John Harvard. And I thought, I really don't belong here. I better get out. So you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I did not belong yeah. there. Anyway, uh, yeah. did, did you ever read the book, The Boys in the Boat? Oh, yeah. Well, that's got to be a movie sometime. Yeah, I, I, I don't know why I haven't made it yet, but uh, it, I, I'm sure it's been optioned. But yeah, that was uh, that, when that came out. Everybody's like, "Oh, you got to read Boys in the Boat," and it was it was great. It was wonderful. Yeah. So for, for all of our listeners and dial up, um, <laughs> it, it was a book, a true story based on this uh, rowing team. Was it the University of Washington? Yeah, it was the, the UW rowing team, and, and they, they took the UW crew, and mm-hmm. they rowed as the American crew in 1936 at the Olympics in Berlin, Germany. Yeah, but so. you don't, you, but this is, they didn't have, like, Olympic trials. You had a win against all the other uh, colleges and other rowers. So there was one down in, uh, somewhere in California, but Princeton and Yale and Harvard, they were the big rowing team. So yeah. it was like a, an upset victory, right, when Washington beat them or whatever? And yeah, a little bit. I think there was, um, and this is the one of the crazy things about that uh, that book is just understanding. Like they do all, they describe all these uh, uh, regattas that they would have right. going down the Hudson River, and literally, like it's a little bit like you know reading. It's like Sea Biscuit or, or some of the other books about like how boxing was in the early twentieth century and so forth. Like it's just. It's insane. They would have trains of yes. people that would like, they would go down the tracks on the Hudson and track the boats as they went. And they would have announcers and oh, like yeah. hundreds of thousands of people lining the shore. So, you know, for, for a sport that now, you know, nobody ever watches crew or right. except the people who are participating in it. Um, but uh, it's it, it, it window into a very different time in the country. Yeah. Um, but also, it's a great story about the guys who were uh, were in that boat together. And yeah. and the the Western crew is always you know Berkeley uh, has always had a good crew program, UW and and they've always struggled for respect against the the top Eastern schools. So yeah, um, that that's an element of it as well. It's a great book though. Yeah, back then they had that was like one of the bigger sports, boxing and and rowing. And I guess baseball a little bit, football no, you know none of that. Yeah. Basketball yeah. no, it yeah. was rowing. Yeah. So, but they didn't, and they didn't row like you know. It wasn't like they had a, a rowing match every week. They had right. like a couple a year or whatever, right? They just trained mostly. Yeah. I, I enjoy yeah. watching it, like when it's usually yeah. the Olympics, right? That's like the times that I usually yeah will will get to watch it. But um, you know, down in Philly, they do it on the school kill there, right? Yep. Um, there's all the boathouses yeah. for the different schools there in Philly. Yeah. Um, yeah, but no, there's a great there's a great rowing culture in, in Philadelphia. Yeah. Boathouse Row is, is yeah. famous, and yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I drove my really, brother. My brother attended Penn, and he he rowed for a couple of years right? at, at yeah. UPenn. I drove through one weekend whenever there was a big event going on, and it was it was cool just because all these you know huge university tents, yeah, you know, just lining the yeah. river, you know, where their teams were all set. Listen, if you people out there haven't gotten the book that dial up, you need to read this book because right, not, it's not done there. They go to the Olympics, but it was the Olympics in Berlin right before World War II, and Hitler was 
and yeah. uh, you know the, the leader of Germany then, and they were on the, the boat they went over there on this the dude that oh they made the movie out of um, oh my lord invincible gonna, the runner oh um Jesse yeah. Owens no. Jesse Owens. Jesse Owens, I think, was on there too. Too, but um, no, the the guy that was a distance runner, he got captured yeah. by the Japanese, yeah, 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 was in yeah. prison, uh, and uh, they uh, made a, uh, two uh, movies uh, out of it. And I can't remember his name. Un- anyway, yeah. Unbreakable. Unbreakable, Unbroken, yeah. Unbroken. One of those things. That's yeah. the movie, Unbroken. right? Yeah, that's you, you got to read the book though. Zan Petty. That's actually Zan that, Petty. Wasn't that the it? Same woman, yes, the Louis same Zan woman. Zan Petty. That's what it. That's the same woman who wrote Sea Biscuit. Wrote Unbroken as well. Right. Yeah. Anyway, that was a big plug for the book. All right, book number three for my year's goal. Yes. All right. <laughs> so what, um, what, what did you study at Harvard? Uh, I studied, uh, uh, they call it government. The rest of the world calls it, uh, calls it political science. So there, there's a, there's a whole, there's sort of a joke about at, at Harvard of like, you know, Oh, what dorm did you live in? They're not dorms, they're houses because a residential house system. Oh, what'd you major in? Oh, it's, they're not majors. They're concentrations. Mm. Oh, okay. Well, what'd you major in? What'd you concentrate in? Government is in that political science, yeah. So it's like <laughs> everything's got to be a little bit different at Harvard, right? Yeah, yeah. So then what happened? How'd you end up in Charlotte? Uh, so I wanted to write for a living, um, and and so I uh, I uh, became a journalist, and and I wanted to be a sports writer specifically, and I ended up working on with uh, the Associated Press, which is the the worldwide wire wire service. Um, and uh, at least at the time, it was the world's largest news gathering organization. And I um, got hired by the Boston Bureau. I was living in Boston after I graduated, and I was um, what uh, journalists call stringing or, or freelancing for a bunch of different publications trying to break in. And uh, a guy named Howard Ullman, who was the Associated Press sports writer in Boston at the time, he needed somebody to string Harvard men's basketball games, which is just basically, you know, go to the game call in the score to the desk so they could send it out on the wire and dictate 100 to 120 words about the game. And the Harvard men's basketball team was not very good at the time. Um, and uh, they, they got better subsequently. But um, but so that, that was my first job with the AP. And the guys who worked the desk and were taking you know my, my dictation uh, took a liking to me and started sending me out to do some other stuff. So they would call me up and say, oh, you know, uh, Tom Coughlin just quit as the uh, the head coach at Boston College. He's going to take a job in the NFL. Can you go cover the press conference? Get us some quotes from it. Yeah, sure, I'll do that. Or you know, and that that and eventually a job opened up in the Providence, Rhode Island bureau, and they were like, you should you should apply for this job. You know, take the test and 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 apply. And and that was what I ended up doing. So I, I worked in in Providence, Rhode Island, for the AP for two years um, in a four person bureau, um, and and it was just it was such a great experience. Rhode Island's a small state, but there's a lot going on. And the, the newspaper members at the time had very high expectations of the AP report. So they really, you know, wanted us out there covering a lot of stories and picking up the stories they were writing. So, and it was in Providence, the, the bureau at the time and the AP had a, a reputation for being a little bit of a sweatshop. And so, there were there were four of us in the bureau, and we all had to kind of lean on each other. And we had a, a correspondent who was in charge, and it was his first kind of managerial job in the AP. A guy named Frank Baker, who's now the news editor for California, um, and he uh, he taught us kind of everything we knew. And um, it was it was just a really a great team atmosphere, and, and a lot of uh, um, 
you know, there was a lot, it, it was very similar to being in the boat, actually. It was, mm-hmm. you know, we were, we were a little bit competitive among ourselves, uh, but it was a lot of that same feeling of like, we're all in this together. And, you know, I may not, I, I didn't always want to, you know, drinking with my crew buddies after, after the race, but we shared something and because we did something hard on a daily basis, yeah. um, that, that, that's really carried through to, I, I would have to say a lot of my life since then. Um, because it's that, it's that aspect of like, we're, uh, we're, we're going to do something hard together and we're going to be in relationship as, as a result of that. And pretty much the definition of why F3 works, right? You're not, you're not getting up at, at five thirty or, you know, when the alarm goes off at four forty five, you're not getting up because you're dying to do push ups in the mud at, at mm-hmm. five thirty. Um, it's because you're in relationship with the guys that you're going to see. Um, and, and you want to build on that relationship and, and carry that forward. So, um, so that was, um, that was two years in Providence. And then I had started dating a, a young woman, um, uh, right at the time that I, uh, that I took the Providence job and she lived in New York and, uh, was, uh, working in publishing at, at Simon and Schuster was a book editor. And so we kind of commuted back and forth for a couple of years. And then I contrived to get myself transferred to the New York city desk of the AP, uh, in, in 1996. And, arrived there right after um flight 800 went down over long island sound um the twa flight that that went down um and so the very first thing i was sent to do uh, when i showed up for work uh, in late july was go cover the uh the stake out the ramada inn where all the victims families were staying every day and cover that story and that was a wonderful time to be in new york city that was you know sort of giuliani's uh end of his first term start of his second term um, and I was there from kind of 96 to 98 and the city was really changing and reviving in a lot of ways. And so there were just always a million stories to cover and, and a huge appetite nationally, uh, for stories about, about New York. And mm-hmm. so we were, we were sort of telling the story of New York to the rest of the country. Um, and that was, that was very cool. Got to be, uh, um, got to be there when the Yankees won their first world series. I'm not a Yankees fan, but it was their first world series. And, in, uh, I guess it was 18 years at that time which qualifies as a big drought in uh right. in yankees baseball history but um we got to be there in 96 for that and um so yeah that was a great time and then sarah and i ended up you know i ended up proposing to, to sarah and and um and we got married in 1998 and uh lived in uh, in brooklyn for a couple of months uh, after we got married and then uh and then i got transferred to lexington kentucky where i was the sports writer in, in charge of uh um, of the state of Kentucky, but also a one-man correspondent in uh, in Lexington, covering um, UK basketball, UK football, and horse racing. So that was um, that was a lot of fun. And then the, the ended up coming to Charlotte two years later. I decided to take a couple of years off from the AP to to experience working for a newspaper instead of a uh, instead of the wire service, and um, ended up. Uh, uh, with a job at the Charlotte Observer, so that was why we moved to Charlotte in in two thousand. So. Nice, nice. Uh, you know, yep. uh, you go to school, he studies government, but then he be, then he wants to be a writer. Yeah, writer. yeah. <laughs> yep. that's yeah. What a cool journey. Yeah, yeah. That's very very cool. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess if you go to Harvard, you could do anything, right? Well, I mean, that's the virtue of a liberal arts education, right? Yeah, like right. I could have gone to grad school in, in political science and, and pursued a PhD, but I, I knew, 
I wanted to write. And the funny thing is that at the time that I graduated, there were not many people who were sort of at the intersection of popular writing and academia. So that, that was not sort of an accepted career path. I think it's become more so in, in the 30 years since then. And, and, and there have been writers who've really paved the way for that. But, um, but that was, you know, if, if I, if I wanted to go to grad school, I was going to have to do very kind of focused academic writing. Um, and that really wasn't the kind of writing writer that I, I necessarily wanted it to be. Yeah. So, um, that, that was, that, that was kind of the choice. So. That's great. So you were, you were rowing in college and that's, that's a s- serious fitness level. Um, what, <laughs> what happened when you got out of college with your fitness? Uh, I did whatever, does, which is started, uh, you know, drinking, uh, drinking more and eating, uh, or working out less and, and eating more and, and leading a more sedentary lifestyle. And so, you know, I rode, I rode for two years at Harvard, but then even, um, my junior and senior years of college, um, there, there were a group of, uh, four of us who roomed together and we decided, uh, our senior year, we decided to, to as a distraction from right, we're, we're all writing senior theses. Um, and so as a distraction from the research of, uh, and the, the hard work of that process, we would train for the Boston marathon, um, through the winter. And that would be something to kind of focus on. Um, and so the, this was the days when there was a lot less security around, around the marathon. And it was a little more culturally accepted to just jump in as a bandit and, and run in, in Hopkinson, even if you didn't have a number. So, um, we, uh, we did that in the spring of 1992 and, and, uh, that was the first marathon I ever ran. So that kind of, I got bit by that bug a little bit. And so trained for another marathon, um, the summer after I graduated and ended up running that one in, in Dublin, Ireland, where I was on oh, a, wow. a fellowship the year after I graduated. And then just, uh, when I got back to the States, started running, running more marathons and, and, for a long time had a thing of, of wanting to, uh, um, to run a marathon in every state. And, and as I was sort of going through adulthood and, and working hard and, and not paying as much attention to my eating as I should and, and cross training and stuff like that, I was running these marathons and I got to about like my 19th or 20th state. And I just couldn't figure out why all of a sudden I'm running these times that are like, you know, you know, 335, 340, 350. Now I'm getting up 430. Now it's taking me almost five, five hours. And, and it's one of the, it's just one of those things. Like you, you look yourself in the mirror every day and, and you don't, you don't, you don't see that, you know, three hundredths of a pound that you gained the day, the day before. Um, and, and you can't really see that cumulative impact of it. But, uh, I was up, uh, I was up to about 250 pounds when I was running marathons. Ooh, wow. Um, and, and, uh, when, when I, so I, and I had actually taken a break from the marathoning when I went out to that first campus workout. And that was really the thing that like working out with those guys and how sore I was the next day and how I couldn't keep up with these guys. I could, I could run all day. That was no problem. But, um, the fact that I, I couldn't do a single pull up, I could barely do any push ups. Um, that made me kind of rethink my approach and be like, Oh, okay. Well, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to come out here on Saturdays with these guys, I'm going to, um, I got to do stuff during the week to be able to keep up with them. And and some of those competitive juices kick in. And so between, uh, kind of that summer of 2008 and 2009, I dropped probably 40 pounds Mm -hmm. and, and got back down to, to fighting weight and, and 
um, got much more focused on how I was eating and what I was eating and so forth. And I was working out during the week to be better for the workouts on, on, on the weekend. And, um, and so that was a, a real revelation. And when I went back to marathoning, actually after we, we started F3, um, I was much faster again. And, and my, my running was, was vastly improved. So, um, that, and that, that was the thing that, you know, really for Dave and me, I, and he, we, we talk about it in the book, that, that thing of like, we, we, I, he, 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 he would yo-yo in his weight. He would, he would go up 40 pounds and right. down 40 pounds and get super disciplined and get, you know, he had his fat pants in the back of the closet right. that he talks about. But for me, it had been just sort of this steady, very incremental climb. And then there was one big drop down and, and I've, I've fluctuated in the years since and, and I have some circumstances right now that are making me maybe a little bit less in shape. But, um, but F3 was the one, the thing that I found that like, boy, you know, my commitment to the workouts and my commitment to getting up in the morning and, and making that daily down payment as, as we describe it, um, was what kind of helped me keep everything else, uh, else in, in check. So, yeah, we got my co-host here is a marathoner. He has a similar story. Well, you have you got to run another yeah. marathon now. Yeah, I know. It's a half marathon. Now I got to. He just did a half. Mar- he was a marathoner, and anyway, started F three, got back in shape, and now he ran a half marathon in like thirty minutes or something. Yeah. How, how long was it? What's that? How long? What was your time? Hour thirty four. Hour thirty four. Yeah. All right. Uh, there you go. There you go. Yeah. You know, so that your story speaks to speaks to me though, because looking back, like even when I was in really good marathon shape. I don't think overall my fitness was, was as good as it is now. Yeah. Cause like, right. You know, I, I, I was trained to run. That was it. Like right. that, that was the pure focus, right? There wasn't cross training. There wasn't really a whole lot back then. It wasn't the strength training thing. Wasn't that big, but, but yeah, right. I, I've said, you know, now in my, you know, well, almost 50, I, I'm probably in some of the best shape of my life. I, I still could shed some pounds, which would, which would really, really help me. Um, uh, but I'm probably in the best shape of my life, even comparing it to, Mm-hmm. those marathoning days um just because well you yeah you you may remember these i remember you used to go to races and you would see the older runners and they were they were sort of skinny but they'd have these pot bellies yeah, yeah. um and 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 it was because nobody ever did any course you know no there was no course strength and, yep. and running won't do that on its own you gotta you gotta work your abs yeah separately and and do that stuff that gives you core strength but i remember when i was first running races in the early 90s and you'd you see these guys and they were fast as hell, but they'd have these like yeah. little pot bellies. Yeah, you wouldn't think so, like, it, right? Yeah, you wouldn't think they'd be fast yeah. and they'd kick your butt. They usually pass you at the mile yeah. when you're a young buck. The young bucks always lead at the mile. Yeah. And then the old guys go blowing past them after, usually after like the first yeah. mile of a 5K, yeah. 10K or whatever road race. Uh, it's yep. kind of funny. Yeah, I don't blow past anybody. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, like, I, I like to pass the young guys now after yeah. the first mile. I've said this before, yeah. but there are runners and there are guys that run. I'm a guy that runs. Although I'm not running, I can't run now. So I, I yeah. anyway. Um, yeah, so you guys launched F three. Wait, hold, hold yeah. on. So you're, so you're, are you still at the Charlotte Observer? No, he has this. No, 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 oh, no. That's right. I, never mind. That's right. That, never mind. Yeah, light bulb. Yeah. So I, I Pay left. Attention, Dallop. Sorry. <laughs> I went. I went to the. I went to the Observer. I was there for two years, and then I went back to work at the AP. And I headed headed the Charlotte bureau, and and kind of was the. I, at, at one point, I was the news editor for North Carolina. At another point, I I basically was in charge of, of all coverage of North Carolina, kind of west of of Charlotte, and so um, did that. And then finally got to a point. Um, we had three kids by then; they'd all been been born in Charlotte. 
I told you the story of, of how, how many different places I lived in California when I was growing up. And, and, uh, the, the AP has a tendency, much like the Catholic Church and, and the U.S. Army, to like say, okay, well, you've been in Charlotte for a couple of years. Now we want you to go to Dallas. Now we want you to go to Miami. Now we want you to go take this job here. And I didn't want to do that. We, we, we were very happy in Charlotte. Um, my kids had grown up in the same house. Um, and, and that we, we got, had them in a school that we liked a lot. And so in, in 2006, when they really started rattling my cage, I was like, you know what? I, I think I'm going to get out. I, I've, I've done what I wanted to do in journalism. And so I ended up working, uh, uh, for an, an investment bank here in Charlotte that, um, basically a sell side middle market investment bank called Edgeview Partners. And they hired me to, to help them with marketing and business development. And so, that was what I spent kind of 2008 to 2010 doing uh, or 2007 to 2010 doing. And then there were a group of us that rolled out and founded another investment bank to do basically the same thing um, called Black Arch Partners. So I was a founder at that firm in, in 2010. So that was that was where I was working at the time that uh, that we that Dave and I started F3 and and uh, worked there for a couple more years. But I'm I'm not. You can probably see, like, I change jobs every couple of years, and 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 so I'm I'm just the kind of guy like I, I get bored easily. I, I always want some exciting project to be working on, and so when I left Black Arch, um, I worked part time or on a contract basis for a startup firm that was doing customized uh, CRMs, uh, customer relations databases like Salesforce, um, for private equity groups and and investment banks, and so. That was a startup called Deal Cloud. I worked there for a couple of years. I went back to work in a, in another business development role. And in the meantime, you know, we'd, we'd published Free the Lead and, and we were spending a lot of time, uh, Dave and myself and Jim Cotchett and, uh, and Jason Silverstein had formed this kind of foursome that they called the EG at the time that was really the, the leadership team for F3 Nation. And we were trying to figure out how do we scale this this thing that we've started that's gotten a lot of momentum in, in the Carolinas, but how do we start scaling it to places that you got to get on a plane to reach? And, right. and uh, so that, that, that we've got to be a part of that and, and grow that as, as well. So. Yeah. That, I mean, do you're obviously a really talented guy and, um, and uh, done a lot of things. And now you got your own business, which we'll, we'll talk about in a second. I, um, I think that's incredible that you guys could do that. You know, you go from basically studied government, worked in for the AP as basically a journalist and reporter. Then he goes, becomes a marketing guy and then he's an investment banker. I mean, it's just amazing, isn't it? Here we are. How many different jobs have you had in your lifetime? Well, I do the same thing. I've, I've been a couple of different places, right. but basically doing the same thing. Doing the same yeah. thing, yeah. And me, like, too. Yeah. yeah. So, um, F3Wise, so you guys, I, I, the, the history of this is just fascinating to me. Um, when you guys were in the campus, before you before you separated, and then you ended up starting this thing called F3, uh, were, is it, were you doing exercises in cadence there? I can't remember if it's mentioned in the book. Dave, Dave was the one who really, because he had the military, military background. Yeah. He'd, been a, he'd been an Army Ranger. He'd um, and so he was the one who really kind of introduced the cadence counting. Um, and, and then that became, um, that became kind of the, just the way we did things at F3. So, yeah. So you, the mission of F3 is to plant, grow and serve small workout groups for the invigoration of male community leadership. When did yeah. you, when did the focus go from a workout and fellowship to 
the mission is to help guys be better leaders. How did that happen? Uh, so, yeah, so that, that it's almost sort of reverse engineering. You know, you, you, we, like when we started, when, when we started that first splinter group from the campus, and I think at the time it was still, it was like called the campus AG because AG middle school was the, where we planted it or whatever. Didn't, hadn't even named it F3 yet. Um, we knew from the very start that, and, and when, and the, I guess the other factor in this was that 35 guys showed up for the very first workout. Right. So like the, the campus guys, when they started, um, it was like two of them and they literally grew it to the 25 that, you know, that it came to before, uh, before Jeff shut it down. Well, we started on, and on day one, we had, we, we had a larger problem than the problem that, that caused the campus to be shut down in the first place. So Dave and I realized that we would not be able to lead every workout. And, and more to the point, I think we both had experienced that it was actually really important that we not lead every workout. And I'll, I'll kind of tell you guys the story behind that or what, what made it kind of clear for me, which was that about six weeks after I, I started at the campus, Jeff Gillibo turned to me one Saturday and he said, Hey, will you lead next next week's workout? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, I guess so. Um, I don't know. I'm still not in in very good shape, but um, but yeah, I can I, I can do something. And as I thought about it during the week, I was like, okay, well, none of these guys can run, so I'm I'm gonna go make them run. I'm gonna and and some of them actively did not like to run. Like they were they they were over 250 and and happy to be over 250 and not looking to to um to to trim that so um i basically ran the group out of the park and down the greenway into a a road that's called hillside which will give you an idea and i made them run hill repeats uh for an hour and a lot of those guys were really pissed off about that and did not (laughs) like it at all um but i kind of made my mark and like that was my thing and and so you, you know, you, you think about it, it is literal sweat equity, right? I've been, I've been given an equity ownership piece in this, in this workout group. And I've been able to bring something of myself to it when I was asked to lead. So it's, it's no longer just Jeff's workout group, right? It's, it's now it's partly OBT's workout group. And, and when Dred comes in and leads for the first time, he's got that equity stake of ownership. And, mm. and, that that was one of the things we knew. We had a guy, um, and I'm transitioning anecdotes here, but we had a guy who had been in the army with Dave, um, who heard about what we were doing almost from the very beginning. I think Dave was maybe posting about F3 uh, that first year, 2011. And John called Dave up and he said, hey, that sounds really cool. That sounds like the PT we used to do in the army. I'm down here in Noonan, Georgia, a suburb of Atlanta. I want to plant it. That's, you know, I, I really want to do it. And, and can you tell me what to do? So Dave and I spent some time with him and he, he started it up. He planted the flag. I think that was the first non Charlotte workout that, that was planted. Um, and it lasted about six months because it was John's workout group and John led every Saturday. Mm-hmm. And that was great for John. And that was maybe great for some of the guys, but eventually you got to give some other people a chance to lead, right? You got to, you know, maybe John likes flipping tires, but you know, the other guys don't like flipping tires that much. And, and, and you're making yourself completely dependent on the interest and willingness of one guy 
to keep doing this. And he's not being paid, by the way. I don't know. Have either of you ever been paid to lead enough for a workout? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm still waiting. No. <laughs> yeah. Your, your check hasn't cleared yet. No, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get that in the mail to you. I'll, I'll but, take breakfast no, being so bought. Like, I don't know. I've had bribes to not do certain things <laughs> at workouts. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Hey, let's flip you a 20 if there's no burpees right. in the workout. Today. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, but, but it, that, that literally died that first winter that what John was trying to do because guys get bored and they drift away and it's, it's mm. John's workout. It's not their workout. So we, we knew that we had to give other guys a stake in it. And so very early on, um, you know, we started mixing other guys in and teaching them how to lead. And then by the end of the first year, we did, we started doing something we called uh, Q school at the time, which was to teach guys how to cue and 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 that was the the very first time i told that third 500 story that i tell at the end of the book was um during one of the sessions of cue school to, to help guys kind of understand what the larger picture of what we were doing was and mm-hmm. so um can you, can you, really, can you just describe uh, described everybody with that third 500 is it's the second time we've referenced it i'm not sure everybody knows yeah i know i'm, I'm sorry i should have so so basically the third 500, uh, a crew race, uh, and this was something that I learned from my, my, I heard from my crew coach, um, my, my freshman year and, and Fred sat us down and this was before we were uh, going through racing season and, and a crew race is, is 2000 meters long. And, and Fred sat us down and he said, look guys, you know, the, the first 500 meters of the race, you're going to be coming off the line. And you're going to be full of adrenaline and you're going to be rowing at a stroke rate of about 40. And, um, and that's great. And that's fine. And, and that first 500 is going to fly by. And the second 500 meters of the race, I want you to settle down to your race cadence, which will probably be about 36 strokes a minute. Um, and, and that's going to be a nice settle from the, the franticness of that first 500 meters. Um, and you're going to get in cadence and, and you're going to go. And that second 500 meters is going to, going to fly by. Um, the fourth 500 meters, you know, 1500 to the finish of the race, that's just going to be balls to the wall. And that was literally, that was the first time I'd ever heard that phrase. He's like, uh-huh. you're going to be all out. The finish line's going to be in sight. The coxswain's going to be raising the stroke rate. You guys are going to be digging and, and giving it everything you have. And so I don't, don't worry about that. You'll, that'll come. Where the race is going to be won or lost though is in the third 500. And that's your, you're halfway through the race. The, the, the start is a distant memory and the finish is, is way too far off to even contemplate. You're about four minutes into the race at this point. You're starting to be in oxygen debt because you're working anaerobically at this point. You're going to be really in a lot of pain and, and really uncomfortable and trying to keep up this, this and sustain this stroke rate. That's where the race is won and lost is in that, that third 500. Um, and so. I took that in my life and I, you know, uh, dial up, you, you've run some marathons. Uh, people talk about the wall, but you know, at 20 miles or whatever. But for me, that half marathon to, you know, kind of 20 mile mark, which is equates to the third 500 of a marathon, the, yep. the, thir- the third quarter of the race. That's the hardest part. Yep. Like again, you can't, you can't sniff the finish line at that point. You're just grinding it out. Maybe they ran a half marathon and, and the half marathon is of all finished and, and you're stuck, you know, doing a second loop. Um, and, uh, that, that's the toughest part of the race and, and, you know, go out and run a mile at the track, you know, that, that third lap is going to be the hardest one. Um, and 
the the thing that struck me that first year that we we were uh, growing F3 in Charlotte was we were going around the COT one morning and uh, and we would you know do the usual thing of you know it's Tim Whitmire OBT I'm 40 and then there happened to be a whole bunch of guys who, who that day who were lined up together in the COT and they were all 43 mm-hmm. um, and 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 I was like God you know we like we're all these you know guys who are just just past 40, which, you know, back in the old days, that was your midlife crisis was when you were 40 or whatever. I think it's more like 50 now for some guys, but, um, I'm like, all these guys are in their forties. And I started thinking about, you know, life expectancy is 80 years and zero to 20, you're just coming off the line. That's the first 500 of a man's life. And, and 20 to 40, you're kind of settling in, you're, you know, maybe finishing up college or getting out of the military or, or finishing grad school figuring out what you want to be in your life, getting settled into your, uh, into your, your race pace. Well, we were a bunch of guys who were in the third 500 of our lives, you know, and, 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 you know, who knows what, uh, you know, what, what 60 to 80 might look like. And none of us, none of us knows what that's going to be, but, but here we were kind of, you know, out in the middle of the ocean of life and, and the shore and the start line were, were a distant memory. And, and that F3 was clearly filling this need for these guys who were in the, in the third 500 of life. So yeah. that's, that's really where that came from. Um, and, and that was really where it became, you know, we started reverse engineering and we realized that this is, yeah, it's about fitness. And, and the fitness was clearly the magnet that was drawing guys in because, you know, a, um, a defib, as you probably learned, you know, with, ministry mm-hmm. it's a lot easier to get a guy to come out to a free workout with you than to invite him to a bible study or yep. invite him to your church right right yep um there's some there's some barriers that come up when when you try to evangelize a guy in 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 that way necessarily that's that's sort of overt but invite him to a workout that's a little bit easier it's free it's you know there's a bunch of other guys there um and then, you know, and this Dave coined this thing. So the, if the workout's the magnet, then, then the fellowship, the fitness is the magnet, and then the fellowship becomes the glue. It's that's, as I said earlier, that's the reason why you're getting up mm-hmm. at, at 445 in the morning and you're posting. Um, and then the dynamite is, is that third F, is that faith piece. Is, right. You know, when a, when a man is fit and when he's friended um, and he feels secure in his life and he's having those needs met, that's when he's got the ability to kind of, sorry, I'll, I'll uh, take his head out of his own behind right. and look around and say, how do I, how do I want to make an impact on the world? What can I do to make things better beyond merely my own survival and, and that of my immediate family? And that, that was the best way we could, that sort of dynamite action and that faith piece of, of belief in something beyond yourself was the best way we could express what we saw happening among those guys. So. Yeah. Uh, well, that's exactly what happened. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we yeah. interview a lot of guys, obviously 55 episodes. Um, and each guy pretty much to a man, almost all of them were guys in F3, not all of them, but almost all, but like three, I think. Yeah. And, uh, they all say, when I ask them, what has F3 done for you? All pretty consistently, it's improving confidence, making me more bold, improving my leadership, obviously getting more fit, but, that you know boldness and confidence that guys start gaining and how that impacts their the way they they handle the rest of life and uh, um, so yeah it works it works and I I've said yeah. this before 
I've done, you know, I've done these men's groups before and stuff like that. And they're great. They really are. But a lot of guys struggle with the same thing and they talk about the same thing year after year after year and, and they can't get past <laughs> something. And, um, but in F3, it seems like it's a vehicle that helps guys more, helps them uh, to more likely get over these things in their past, the things that they struggled with. Do something about it. Yeah, I don't know. It's something about being fit and doing something hard with other guys, usually in the morning and when it's bad weather, good weather, whatever. And there's some, there's a, there's a, there's a magic mix there that, that really works for men. And, uh, and it's, yeah, so anyway. it's, uh, I, yeah, no. And then that to me, that was why, you know, my experience of, of having to lead that first time or being asked to lead the first time for me personally was so important. And, and we really, kind of try to enshrine that culturally and 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 the thing you discover when you start working out with guys and and meeting these guys and they come in is like you know when when they show up for that virgin queue at at 5 30 in the morning and the bell goes off some of these guys this is the first time they've ever had other adult males looking to them to be in charge or to lead anything right and that that can be an intimidating thing for a lot of guys. Some guys do it once and then never want to do it again. But for some guys it can be just incredibly liberating. Like, Oh, I can do that. I can, I can be the one. And, and, and it's, it's that it plays into also why we don't script the workouts. And and we, we had conversations with uh, some literary agents at one point about doing a, a, you know, non self published version of the book. And, and they said, okay, well, you've got to include some workouts at the end because it's, it's got to be a um, new year, new you type book or a fitness book or whatever. We want to be able to market it. And, and we had to say to them, like, we can't do that. That's not like, that's not what F3 is about. F3 is about you having to come up with the workout and, and the workout being unscripted and not, there's not a template to follow you. We're, you're going to, you're going to rely on yourself to, uh, to lead this workout and and it's and it's going to be it's going to rise or fall depending on on your strengths as a as a leader in this moment yeah absolutely all right there's a few other things i want to talk to you about um before i ask the final questions so first of all um the we're we're talking about the book right now so let's stick with that Uh, the second edition came out and uh you cleaned it up a little bit but it's pretty much the same stuff but in the beginning of each chapter is an essay from a guy who talks about what F three's done for him is meant for him, and yep. uh, I know you had a you had to go through a number of essays that were sent into you, and you had to pick a certain amount. Is there any thought to making available the other essays that got cut? They're uh, they're there. I mean, I can we we can I, I can I can figure out a mechanism for trying to to make those those available. Obviously, with the permission of the guys who wrote them, although they all wrote them with the intent that they could be published. So. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I there could certainly uh, find a way to, to to make that happen, and and you know, Rev, uh, the Rev Reed's guy that we talked to about it, he he was sort of asking that, you know, what was the best one that got got left on the cutting? Well, that that's what so, prompted me yeah. to come up with this question because I heard I listened to that today, yeah. and you guys, and you said it was really hard to leave some of them out of thing. But I said, boy, why don't we you know find a way somehow to let make them available? You know, yeah. easy for me to say when yeah. I don't have to do the work, but. <laughs> Or you, just do, or you could just do a podcast and have guys come on and tell their story about. Well, that's why, well, you know, we could do it that way too. Yeah, but, yeah you, you can, can do you just give way. us the names of the guys? Yeah, just send them to me. We'll, we'll bring them on the, on the podcast. That'd be exactly. great. Exactly. 
No, just no but and that that was and that was really you know we we got to you know twenty 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 happened and and uh, and that you know the whole COVID thing and that and we had to we had to postpone the ten year anniversary celebration uh, that was supposed to happen in January twenty twenty one and it was in the course of that that I realized you know what we really should um, do a second edition of the book like you said clean it clean a few things up. But also, like, I just felt like the, the book was very much, most of it Dave's story, and, and he's got a lot of great stories, and, and I credit him for writing most of it, and you can sort of pick out the parts that, uh, that I wrote, um, and, and then I, I added it as well. But, um, but really, let, let's, let's get some other stories in there, because there have been so many great stories in that first decade yeah. of, uh, of guys who had done amazing things. Um, and, and so, to me, it was really labor of love on my part to want to get out there and, and let some other guys tell their stories, um, and, and supplement uh, what we're doing there. And I, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to think that a third and a, and a fourth edition potentially at some point are going to include even more stories because, um, cause they keep coming, uh, you know, every, yeah. you know, it just seems like every week, every month I hear about some other amazing story of, yeah. of stuff that guys are doing. So, Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Do you hold any uh, official leadership position in the nation right now? No, no. I stepped back in uh, in 2018, uh, kind of stepped down as, as Weasel Shaker and, and moved off that that executive group that we had. And it was a, about that time that, you know, I think that, you know, the fact that I needed to take a break and, and um, step back from that a little bit, that helped, uh, you know, not, not that it was any great glory on my part, but help, you know, kind of spur some of the formation of, you know, we let's get a board here. Yeah. Let's, um, let's think about succession. Let's, let's figure out, um, how the organization carries forward. And so, you know, Jason and, and Dave and, and Jim Cotchett have done a tremendous job in, in the years since then. I think Jimmy, I think they've all, they've all rolled out of their leadership positions at this point. I think Jason was, was still kind of director emeritus of the board um, until kind of late last year, but they, they did a tremendous job of kind of getting that stuff up and running and ensuring that there's a mechanism for F3 going forward and a, a board can, that, that's composed of guys who understand um, what F3 is about, but who are committed to kind of carrying it forward and, and, uh, and continuing the work. So, yeah. um, so no, I, I hold no official title within F3, except I guess former weasel shaker. All right. Um, I know that you said that uh, in your bio, you said you had um, recently uh, suffered a stroke uh, during a cardiac uh, surgical procedure. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's, uh, it's very relevant. Um, it's very relevant to that three story. And I, I've, I've spoken about, about this a few times, but um, I, uh, I kind of came to uh, a couple of days after I'd, I'd had a, it was a scheduled heart procedure. I was having a repair done to my mitral valve. Um, and I just, you know, at some point, uh, during, during the surgery or immediately afterward, I suffered a catastrophic uh, drop in blood pressure that restricted the blood flow to my brain. And so when I woke up in the recovery room, uh, on the evening after the surgery, I was basically not moving my upper body and, and they had to, um, get me in a, um, in an MRI tube, and did a, you know, did a, a full scan and, and it turned out that I'd, I'd suffered a stroke. And, and so I think they sedated me some more and I, I don't remember much for, for a couple of days, but, um, after that, but the Monday after, uh, after I suffered the stroke, um, 
my uh, my brother walked into the hospital room. He, he lives out in Denver, um, and and he said to me, you know, and he, he knows, you know, my close relationships with all the F three guys, and I think he knew that a, a lot of guys were wondering how the surgery had gone and and so forth. And he's like, man, we gotta we gotta start reaching out to to some of your F three guys and and letting them know what happened. And and he really started the ball rolling with. Um, a couple of my closest friends, uh, Nick and Matt, who are here in, in Charlotte and just had breakfast with them this morning. Um, but kind of reaching out to them and letting them know what had happened. Um, and they spread the word, you know, kind of, you know, on, on the, on the down low a little bit to a, a select group of other guys that I, I was close with about what had happened. Um, and I, I, I didn't, I wonder, you know, my wife is, is a fairly private person and, and kind of a, the last thing she, she said this as a joke, but the last thing she wanted was the, um, the Armada pickup trucks coming and the, and the, <laughs> you know, the circle of shovel flags and the candlelight vigil in the, uh-huh. in the hospital courtyard thing. Cause she's, she's seen that a few times. So she, she knows that that's kind of the F3 way. And I, I think she really didn't, um, that, that wasn't what she wanted for us as a family and, mm-hmm. and for my recovery. So we, we kind of kept it a little bit on the down low, but we, Matt and Matt really spearheaded getting a group of guys together um, who could support me um, in my recovery. And I, I ended up in a, a rehab hospital. I, w- I was in the hospital one way or another for about a month after the stroke and um, ended up with a, in a really good rehab hospital um, that's here in downtown Charlotte. And um, basically he set up a schedule of guys to come visit me every day. And I had, a daily schedule of uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy workouts, or, or not workouts, but sessions that were, you know, kind of four or five hours a day mm-hmm. to really kind of spur my recovery. And there was not a single one of those PT sessions that I didn't have another F3 guy or multiple F3 guys there with me to do the workout with me. Um, and it, it wasn't much of a workout for them, but just having them there was, um, just a huge, awesome. huge lift to me and, and was just really kind of critical in my recovery. And, um, and, uh, you know, got to the point where I had a, an F3 flag that my wife hung up in the, in the, in my hospital room at the rehab hospital. And, you know, the nurses would come in and be like, what's this, you know, what is, what is this F3 thing? And, but eventually they sort of figured out that like all these guys who were coming to visit me were my, were my friends. And one of the PT uh, therapist was like, you have more friends than anybody else we've ever, we've ever seen in here. It's just ridiculous. So it, it was, um, I, I've, I've had an, uh, an amazing recovery. Not everything is, is perfect. I still, um, have very limited use in my left hand. My, my, my right arm is, is pretty strong and, and has recovered a lot, but I was up and, and walking, um, within a few days, um, after the stroke and, uh, um, and, and was rocking up and down the, the hallways of the hospital, uh, during my PT sessions. Um, and, and it's really like, I, I just credit a lot of it to, um, to those, uh, those relationships that I built, you know, over the last, uh, 11, 12 years yeah. in F3. And I, as I've said on several occasions, like you don't, you have no idea that you're building this arc that is it going to eventually carry you to safety when, when the storm hits. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just, I thought I was the guy who kind of founded this thing. I had no idea that it was going to be 
the vessel that um, that really kind of kind of saved me when when the storm hit. So, yeah, that's great um, testimony to the community. You know, the kind of guys that are drawn to F three, but also what F three does for guys. Yeah, and you know, yeah. the, the second F man along with the third F. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so then, um, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. It's just it's it's been uh, you know I've I've had. I mean, I, I had been fortunate in a lot of ways, right? Like I was in better shape than your typical stroke patient. I right. was, I was younger, um, but I, I was in better shape going into what happened to me. Um, and, and then I had this mechanism on the backside of guys to lift me up and, and support me and, and make sure that I, I felt that web of connection, um, that, that was going to carry me through this. And, and a lot of people who have strokes don't, don't have that, unfortunately. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, praise God for that. Um, yep. so let's, uh, last, let's touch on your, what you're doing now for, uh, for a living. You're a consultant and you're uh, consulting with CEOs and, and companies about leadership, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've, I've got a practice of, um, I basically do strategic advisory work for, uh, mid-sized companies, you know, sort of growth stage companies. I, I generally define that as, you know, up to 250 employees. Um, but basically business leaders who want to grow and want to execute against strategic objectives and are trying to find a way to get their teams aligned around that. And, and one of the, the things I see and I have seen in the, in the course of working with a lot of companies over time is that um, you can set all the goals you want and you can have a goal setting framework and you can have metrics that people are going to try to hit. Um, but if the leadership team is not aligned around where the business is going and if they're not completely bought in and if they can't develop that relationship that, you know, a, a, a strong crew develops together or a strong group of F3 guys develops together. And again, it's, I, I, I said this earlier, but like I may, I may not want to go out for a beer with every single one of the guys that I ever rode with or with every single guy that I work out with, but we have certain bonds because we're doing something hard together and we've agreed to do. And I, I may not even like the way a guy, a certain guy runs workouts, but I commit to following him because he's the cue and, and that's the cultural obligation of I'm going to follow you. And so one of the things I do a lot with, with my leadership teams is really try to get them aligned um, around certain strategic objectives. This is what we're going to do. Not everybody may be a hundred percent on board with it, when we're in this room, but when you go out of the room and you're in front of your people who you're trying to lead, you damn well better believe I want you to lock arms and be in full support of, of this plan. And, and where that starts and ends for me, is, it, it goes back to what, what I was saying earlier was that, um, about, it's, it's about relationships and, and the, the leadership teams that I work with that struggle the most to execute are the ones where there are not strong relationships among the members where they treat each other as if they're transactions on a ledger. Yeah. You know, I'm, 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 I'm in sales and all that matters is whether our sales team hits, hits, uh, hits their numbers. And I don't care about engineering. You guys just have to have to deliver. Right. And if you're not, if you're going to be on an Island and you're going to treat yourself like you're an on, on an Island and you're not part of a team and not be in relationship with the people you work with, um, that's a recipe for a company that's, that's not going to go anywhere. So, yeah. Um, that was when you said that in your bio, the relational, uh, approach to leadership versus transactional that spoke to me because boy, it was a long time ago now it had to be somewhere around 2002 or four. I, I can't remember, but I had developed, I had 
I had to become a leader at work. And I, so I started reading books on leadership. Plus I was coaching a lot. And so I was trying to learn as much as I could. And I read a book by a guy. I'm not going to remember the author's name. I'm not going to remember the title of the book, but he was, he played football for Syracuse. For Syracuse. I think he played lacrosse too, but he wrote a book on relational. He taught, he taught, called it transformational coaching versus transactional coaching. Yeah. And, uh, yep. and that's, and, and that's what I thought leadership should be. Now, now yeah. if you're if you're a CEO of a company of 250 people or more, you're not going to have a close relationship with each one of those people. Right. But, but the leadership team better have that those relationships. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and that so that really you know uh, just it, it just it, it's come through to me just repeatedly. The the you know I F three like you know look at the the recovery from the stroke was just sort of reinforced like you know i've been i've been doing this for 10 years 11 years now and i've invested a lot in this group and i i never knew how strongly it would come back to me at the you know kind of the most desperate moment of my life and 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 that ability to um keep those connections with people and and foster them um it's just made all all the difference. So. Uh, do you ever uh, recommend F three to the people that you consult? Uh, well, some of them are F three guys. <laughs> I have to uh, consult, consult, <laughs> so. um, and but no, like we, you know, you, you look at that Grow Rock model that that Dave and I kind of started um, as as a means of of getting regional leadership charged up and kind of mm-hmm. you know grow school and 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 all that. But like I've got a. I've got a client out in California where we've talked about um, doing a grow rock style event um, mm-hmm. for them. And, and because the, the lessons uh, that, that can be learned for that um, from that are, are just so beneficial to the leadership team. So, yeah, that's great. Um, yeah. Uh, two more yeah. questions before we let you go. Uh, one is yeah. if you were to pick somebody, um, could be anybody coming from somebody from the distant past coming into somebody now or whatever that you would say is your inspiration or your hero or somebody that uh, you look up to, who would that be? Oh boy. Um, let's see. I would, I mean, I, I, I go back to, I had a very close relationship with my, uh, my maternal grandfather. Um, his name was Paul Levi senior. Um, and he passed away in 1993 and that was, um, but he was, um, he was really kind of a male role model that was very present for me in, in my childhood. Um, and, and he, a very kind and gentle man. Um, and just, you know, just not, not loving in, in a, in a cuddly sense necessarily, but, um, just, you know, just, just a very good man, um, in, in, in all, you know, just sort of a gentleman in the, in the classic, uh, definition of that. And so, you know, that he, you know, that, that was, that was, he was kind of my hero as, as a child. And that, that was, he very much formed my ideal of what, um, what a, a man should look like. And I'm not sure he, anyone would ever describe him as a leader per se. Um, but he's always like, leading from that mentality and that position um, of, of sort of kindness and understanding and compassion was something that, you know, it, to the extent I have that um, it, it, it really comes from him. So. Oh, that's great. That's great, man. Um, last question is, this is your chance to talk 
and give a message to the men of America. What's your message? <laughs> what's your message for the men of America? For the men of America. Um, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I, I don't, uh, I, I'm a pretty optimistic guy. Like I think, you know, I, I think there, there is a tendency and, and my former compatriots in the media are, are guilty, more guilty of this than anybody else of like catastrophizing a lot of things that, you know, this, this is the worst things have ever been for this in this area. And this is, you know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket basically. Yeah. And I don't, I, I just don't see that. And, and, and the funny thing is I, I've, I've actually gotten more this way since the stroke because I just don't pay that much attention to the news anymore. And I don't get yeah. sucked down the rabbit hole of, of politics and so forth uh, because you know, and I, Dave and I have made a lot of hay over the years about, you know, we're, we're, we come from slightly different areas on the political spectrum. And, and, you know, there, there's a lot, there's a little bit of a shtick about that. Um, but I don't, um, you know, people talk about civil war or, you know, this or that in this country. And I, I, I just don't see it. I don't, I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I get up and, and, and I've gone to workouts in every part of the country at this point, And I've worked out with every different type of man in America. And, and I don't, you know, there, there's, I think Reagan was the one who said, you know, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed by what's, what's right about America. And so, you know, the people who say, you know, we're, we're, we're headed for, uh, for doom and gloom. I, I just don't. I just don't buy it. I, you know, just get out there and, and connect with somebody else, uh, build relationships. Don't worry about whether they're in your bubble or, or you agree with them about every single thing politically or, or culturally or, or, you know, whether you, you drink the same wine or your kids go to the same school. Just um, there are a lot of people out there with a lot of different stories. Um, and yeah, there I it's just basically the idea that, uh, you know, just go out, and, and have a conversation with somebody who's, uh, who's, you know, it doesn't matter if your kids go to the same school, doesn't matter if you drink the same kind of wine or vacation in the same places. Um, just have that conversation. There are a lot of people out there with a lot of different stories and we could all just do well to, to listen to one another's stories and, and, and have some compassion for each other. I think that's a great message. In fact, we were talking about this recently and we, we hear so many guys on this podcast who have, and are doing amazing things who have overcome so much in their lives who have turned bad things and the positive things for their communities, overcome addictions, all these other things. And I, and that's, that message is great because America needs to know that there are a lot of men out there who are trying to do the right thing. There are a lot of good men yep. out there working hard for their families and their communities and just doing the right thing. And, um, we're just happy to be able to have this form. Some guys, some small portion of those guys could come on here and tell their stories. Cause every guy has a story yep. to tell. Yep. And man, there's much more than the remnant out there. So, uh, I, and with you, I'm with you, man. I, I, when the last presidential election, I decided I'm not watching the darn news anymore <laughs> or any of that <laughs> stuff because you know, most of it's propaganda and it's just crazy. And, and, and I had, and surprisingly, surprisingly, I wasn't able to change anybody's mind on social media. I, you know, it's shocking. <laughs> it's amazing. I know. It's, it's amazing. Shocking. How I thought, that I thought I could articulate so well that you people tried. would just say, yeah, you're right. No, no. I, so I'm right with you, brother. My, my, my goal is I, know. I can make an impact in my family and my community through F3, through my church. And that's what I'm doing. And hopefully this podcast, yep. whatever God has intended for We've it. We've all got way more in common than we think we do. Right? Yeah. 
Great message, man. Great message. Okay. Excellent. All right. So what we got here, man, is well, I've enjoyed it. Yeah, this yeah. is uh, another high impact. It man. is a high impact man. Yeah, I mean, he start. He's, he's one of the guys who started F three. <laughs> yeah, this is like celebrity. Yeah, and yeah, I, Slaughter cool. told us last summer that F three can save the world. That's right. <laughs> there we go. And you helped give birth. <laughs> Gave birth to the saving of All the right. world. Well, you made a big impact. <laughs> I could tell you the book you co-authored with Dread. You guys made a big impact up here because that was the thing that inspired me to say, "Hey, I got to get back into F three. There ain't no F three around me. I got to plant a shovel flag." So and I'm thankful every day that you I go. did that. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, yeah, and so thank you for doing that because the the ripples that you know that impacts you know that that impacts the guy the guy to your uh, I guess to your left, my right, but <laughs> um and and then you know it ripples out to other guys and and you know all of a sudden you've got you know, I, I I think about a guy like C-SPAN and, you know, he went up to Philadelphia and committed himself to planting in that area. And, you know, somehow word gets to uh, Dos Equis in, in Princeton yeah. and then he's planting the flag there. And now he's got, you know, an amazing group up there that, that I mean, go visit those guys because, I mean, that's, you know, they got they got. Um, they very, it's very reflective of, of that community in Princeton. Yeah. Um, and that's awesome to see. And, and now guys are, are planting flags. I, I was up in Boston a few weekends ago and got to sit down with the guys who have planted the flag in F3 Boston. And, and there's a guy who's a, there's a minister who's trying to do it in, in New York city as well. So oh, New York city, like, that'd be awesome. Yeah. I just, I was in Boston. I just missed those guys getting started up there. It's like, Oh man, if I was like two weeks later, I would have been able to hook up with them. And the Princeton guys, we did the blue Ridge relay with uh, blue Ridge relay with a couple guys from Princeton. So yeah, Yeah. it's cool. The networks that are forming up here. Hey, very, very good guys. And the great thing is when you, you know, the, the great lesson of this is when you give somebody something for free that, that betters his life, it's really easy to ask him to go do you a favor and, you know, plant a flag somewhere else or, or, uh, Headlock another guy. Amen. Well, thanks, brother. I really appreciate you being on here. It's been an honor. Yeah. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed it. It's nice talking to you guys. Thank you for what you're doing to uh, carry the message forward. And uh, and let me know if I can ever be of, uh, of uh, additional assistance. All you got right? it, man. You That's got great. it. God bless you. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I would like to thank our guests for joining us and sharing their story of becoming a high-impact man. More information and resources can be found at highimpactman.com. If you like this podcast, please consider following us on our social media pages or email us at him at highimpactman.com. That is H-I-M at highimpactman.com. The High Impact Man podcast has a new episode every week, and you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcast platforms. Have a great week, everyone.